House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Welcome back into the House of Mystery, and I am Al Warren. Who else would I be? Mr. Joe Goldberg is back, and uh, he's all excited. I, I am so excited. Thanks for not firing me. I appreciate that. <laughs> I can't tell when you're excited and when you're not. You sound the same. That, thank you. Thank you. I'm trying to be steady, Eddie. <laughs> That's what we'll call you. We'll say Ed Goldberg. Ed. I, <laughs> I have stories about Edward Goldberg, but don't get me started on those stories. I'll put that in a book sometime. Yeah, yeah. Well, if you ever decide to take up writing. <laughs> <laughs> How true. How true. Well, your new book comes out this week. Uh, you're yep. all excited? I'm excited. I'm ready to go. It's a, a long haul. Spent a lot of time on it. Thought about it a lot. Now I'm thinking about the next one. Not, no time to rest. No rest for the wicked. That's right. The writing wicked. Well, now, speaking of wicked, we've got a wicked writer. We've got a writer that's done quite a bit. Um, quite surprised, actually, I because I'd, I'd never heard of him until recently, and and I was surprised that I had missed him. I don't know how I did this. Uh, but anyway, here we go. we got Mr. Rick, Rick Mafina. So thank you for being here, Rick. Well, thank you for having me, guys. Where did it all start for you in the sense of uh, uh, policing and um, investigations and things like that? Oh, well, that, um, I guess that arose out of, uh, let me preface it all. I always wanted to write creatively. I didn't feel that as uh, a young guy growing up in a small town that I had much experience. So I, I went the sort of journalistic route and went to university, got the degree, and uh, looked for a job in reporting back in the day. And um, so that my journalistic experiences helped uh, feed into my uh, my desire to write. So um, the two meshed, really. I wasn't sure which genre I was going to go for. Because when I was serious about it, I was thinking of uh, supernatural horror was big. I liked um, the stuff that was being done. But I, when I hit the crime desk at night on the night police beat, um, things started to gel. And I saw, you know, the realities of uh, reporting on real tragedies and the drama in a newsroom. And uh, it's drilled into you how to write for deadline. And, I, and I, it all came together, you know, and I'd already had a university degree. I took some courses. One was called American Detective Fiction, which I enjoyed. Another was uh, existential literature, and another was religious responses to death. So you mix all that up and go on the night crime desk, um, and I came out. Well, you know, it's interesting because it looks like you've had a lot of history in uh, America in the in the uh, crime field, like in Montana, you say Texas, California, and that, Vegas. How did, How did you get involved down there because you're a canadian well i'm a canadian and i worked originally i worked um as a student uh, at the toronto star and ottawa citizen and then um full-time at the calgary herald they were in canada they're large metropolitan daily newspapers back then and they had um budgets where they could afford to send people um wherever the story took them and then i became a national wire service reporter so i did travel quite a bit so if a if a Canadian story had um, uh, U.S. tentacles to it, you, you're traveling into the U.S. So, yeah, um, and on the crime desk, I was on uh, 
death row in Montana, death row in um, in uh, Texas, and death row uh, in Jamaica, and a uh, serial killing case in California. And then there was a armored car heist in Las Vegas that might have had a Canadian connection. So um, all of that and all across Canada. And then I traveled, um, you know, internationally, you know, Africa as well and the Middle East. So, so I, I got a, a little taste of it. By no means am I as traveled as many reporters. Um, and what I did was, you know, what happens around the world in most news organizations, although the technology may have changed, but the stories don't. Rick, was the uh, your life as a reporter, were those stories the basis for a lot of your books and serials and people? Well, it's funny you ask. Um, one of my colleagues who I still keep in touch with, in fact, she read my very first crime manuscript. She was a reporter herself and a, a superior writer to me. And I um, trusted her to read my first manuscript. And she's one of my first readers of all of my books to this day. So she knew me from the crime desk. And she said, what your books are, um, are therapy for you, in her opinion. She said, you just go back and write all the good endings, all the happy endings, she said. That's the big difference. Like when you're a journalist and you're doing reports on a lot of the true crime and serial killer and things like that, you're not really um, changing the end. You're not deciding who your characters are. You, you're just trying to describe what happened and who did it and the facts the best you can. Um, you don't get to choose your ending. So uh, is this kind of why you write in the crime fiction sort of area or the thriller fiction and that is because you do get to choose your outcome? Yeah, I think, I think Al, um, for me, uh, I'm just comfortable in the skin of a reporter, um, the psychology. Um, I may be a little rusty on the technology when I'm writing my reporter protagonist. I would say that 80%, 70% of my books are reporter protagonists. Um, I think, um, you know, when you're doing, doing it straight up, um, everything filters through you, uh, as it probably does for most uh, uh, of the principal people involved in, a, say, a, a tragedy. Um, but uh, on a crime, you're, you're talking to the, the, the cops or the detectives and you're working through them. You're talking to the victims and you're working through them. And in many cases, you're talking to the actual perpetrators and it all filters through you. So when you're on the, the desk uh, and doing the story, it all filters through you. So the, you experience things, you see things you never forget that you that I found, and I'm sure a lot of a lot of um, popular authors who went through the reporter track, uh, you know, Conley, Laura Lippman. There's there's just a lot of them. A lot of Bell McDermott. There's a lot of them. Similar things may have happened. It's not the only route to take for crime fiction. But then with crime fiction, you can you have liberties. I mean, I think for most authors who come from that uh, tradition. They want to make sure the facts are right and that their fiction rings true. I mean, Conley has said it as much as he wants some, a foundation of truth. And so do all of us, I think. And then you can build your fiction on that and you can, um, address themes or whatever. But, um, and you can write the happy endings. You can see that the, uh, you know, the evil forces get their come up and says they should. Or if they don't, then it's, you're writing noir. So, um, yeah, I think for me, it, it served me well and I feel comfortable with that. And um, the readers respond okay, and I, um, you know, the, and I like that uh, that journalistic style of writing, simple, 
clean, um, short, get, get to the point, which is drilled into me. I, I could go on and on about that. And I have my own theories about Thomas Harris, Silence of the Lambs. He came up through that tradition as well. Well, that sort of leads me to my question is, you know, you were writing column inches and now you're writing hundred thousand words or whatever their number is. But how, how did you confront that leap from small to big? I mean, I mean, you know, when you're writing, uh, for a salary and you're paid and, and it's drilled into and you know what you're doing in terms of, uh, journalistically, and I'm talking about my own experiences. Um, it's a totally different field. I mean, there's things that are similar and things you can use totally different from when you're writing creatively, uh, creatively, you, you do have a bigger canvas and, um, it's how you want to address it or, you know, attack it rather. Uh, but on the, the day to day beat, you know, with deadlines and, uh, and logistics and all types of concerns coming at you, um, totally different, but it's, um, it was rewarding. You know, I, I started off with my first book. I worked the night shift on the crime desk and uh, a reporter who I, uh, I followed, he said, if you get up really early and don't sleep your day away, you'll have a whole day to yourself. And that's when the light went on. I thought, I'm really going to knuckle down here and uh, take a shot at writing a, a crime fiction book about a crime reporter. And um, and that's how things went. So I had the whole day. So I had devoted the day to my crime fiction. And at night I was writing uh, about crime uh, in, in the city. Now, now, you've got this series out that's a fairly new out. And I say that because there's three books here, Ray Wyatt Thriller Series. And now you've released one in September, one in October, one in November. So um, you wanted all three of these books to come out um, fairly close together for, for a reason. Um, let's talk a little bit about this series. Um, why all three so quick? Well, the trilogy, um, I don't mind sharing with you. There was a contractual concern was that um, I am contracted. Uh, I'm in, in the midst of a three-book deal with my publisher, and these uh, shorter novels – um, I wrote in between the, the contractual commitment. I wrote them for myself. Um, you know, I was quite relaxed. I was just having fun. I created the character of reporter again, and I thought this will be a trilogy. And uh, working with my agent, I want to make sure that the uh, they didn't violate any terms of the contract. Like the publisher said, no, they're too short for us to uh, want them. You can have them. You can self-publish them, which is what I wanted. But they said, make sure you do it sort of uh, in between releases of the books that we're, we've hired you for. So you're not really competing head to head at the same time with yourself. And, and I was happy to get all of that done. And, and also I know that because they're shorter and, um, the way readers react, even when you finish a major book, as soon as they finish it, they want the next one the very next minute. So I thought having these three come out together would be fun. And it would be fun for the readers and it would keep the interest high. And they've been very well received. Um, we've got very intense interest on the audio rights um, for the series. So I was, I was quite pleased. So that's the reason why they came out together at the time they did. Uh, and, um, yeah, I was really happy. They're only available online. They're not in stores, but they're all in all formats. And uh, they're, they're, they're good stories. And I am in the middle of um, the next major book which will be longer. These books that you refer to, the Wyatt Trilogy, they're, they average about 55,000 words. The major books, as you said, they're, they're closer to 100. Wow. What, so who is uh, Ray Wyatt in this series? Like, is that, 
that's the main character, but how would you describe him and how much of you is in this guy? Oh, uh, every guy I create, there's a little bit of me in there and there's a little bit of everybody else and a little bit of superhero uh, character. So, yeah, you sprinkle a little bit of everything or people you've met or guys you made up. So Ray Wyatt, to me, is a guy uh, in the current industry who um, uh, he's seasoned. He's been, you know, come close to a Pulitzer, but uh, did not win. New York. He's got a tragic uh, personal history. His business, the the industry is, um, you know, is changing so dramatically. So he's he's finds himself uh, out of a job with the traditional wire service. Let's say it's like the Associated Press, and uh, he's uh, he finds a, a second job with a, a new online uh, publication, which is kind of different for him but this uh, online uh, news agency is got even a bigger reach and uh, the people who run it are actually younger than him but they know that he's good so he's sort of the old dog learning new tricks even though he's doing the same old thing and Ray's personal story is that um, when he and his wife were on a vacation uh, in a resort area their little toddler was asleep in their hotel room while they went for dinner in the patio and there was a explosion and a fire and Ray tried to rescue the boy but uh, he had his hand and uh, it was a horrible fire and then he lost the boy and they were told later that the boy had perished and the fire was so intense there was nothing left and Ray and his wife never believed it they were haunted by it um, but they never found a single thing that survived like teeth should have survived something like that so that's the ghost that he's chasing is that his belief that his son somehow vanished and through some nefarious uh, possibility. So while Ray grapples with that, his wife had passed away in a tragic accident because she was thinking of the boy. He's sort of the, the haunted, lonely, wounded knight. Uh, he has his own personal history. While he addresses all uh, news stories um, that challenge him and have a bit of a threat to maybe his own tragedy. So I, I thought I'd have a little fun with that. He's based in New York City and the stories take him to uh, upstate New York and then the second book, they take him to Vermont, um, you know, uh, near the Canadian border. And the third story takes him to Central America. So when you did that short series, did you start with Ray or did you start with stories? Both, actually, both. I knew it was going to be a reporter. Um, I had to give him a situation, um, which I do with all the series. So I... I, I, they were. It was married. It was the two: is a uh, reporter and uh, and and what's his what's his problem? I, I, basically, uh, it's one on one storytelling. You you, you know you got to create a very fascinating character for readers to you know ride with, and they've got to have a problem and a and a quest. In my in this case, it, I planned a trilogy. I wanted to have a story arc, so Ray had to have a quest, and the quest is. Uh, looking for his son and not believing that his son had uh, perished, that there were little clues along the way, which can happen in real life. We see these are rare stories, but it can happen. And, and plus he's, he's dealing with the, the new, uh, a new situation job wise for him. So, um, so I found it fun to be with him. And he sort of befriends a couple of characters along the way, uh, an FBI agent who uh, challenges him and helps him. And, uh, a fellow reporter who is uh, in Los Angeles that he he actually um, collaborates with 
uh, who's she's very good herself. Um, and uh, I think it's to be a bit of an adventure. I, I, I really enjoyed the, the trilogy. When you put um, a book like this out and you have the character kind of in mind and you've got the stories going, um, do you have a subtext or some sort of a meaning that you want people to take away from the book or is it completely entertainment? Well, you know, um, that's a good question. That's really a good question because um, I'll get into that with the current, with the book that's coming out, my new major one coming out in April. There were themes that I wanted to address. And in the Ray Wyatt uh, series, um, yeah, there were themes on one level, but not so, not consciously. It's about loss and belief and hope and, and, you know, coping and, and uh, working your way through a terrible time. Uh, so you think that maybe a re- the readers can draw from that. Everybody suffers losses in life. Everybody suffers setbacks. That's just the, that's the human condition. So, we, so, so on that level, you could, you could say, yeah, I, I plotted all of this, but it has to be entertaining. It has to be page turning and it has to be plausible and realistic. So I think, think for this, that's, that series, yes. Um, and for the one that's coming out called, um, everything she feared, uh, that one, um, I start, I had always had the seed and thought of, um, what was, what is it like for the children of people who have, were basically, uh, evildoers? When you think of the children of, uh, some of the worst Nazis and children of, uh, you know, serial killers. So I sort of mix all that together and I thought, well, um, because there are real stories and real cases. So I started to research that, but, what becomes of those children when they start to go through life and they've got this horrible secret and what could, what could be their concerns and how do they deal with that? So I found the research fascinating. So I, I worked on that. That was a theme in terms of, uh, basically, you know, do the sins of the parents still visit the children, um, or worse, that kind of thing. So, so yeah, sometimes I do look at a theme overtly and, um, and go at it and create people that, you know, they, people will emerge. You start to think, well, what if a person is like this? And what if they had that? And then they, they start to become real in your mind. They become real on the page. And hopefully then they become real for the reader. Uh, you know, when you make that, that magical thing happen, which happened for me when I was a kid, when, when, you know, something suggested on the page and then it becomes real in your mind. I just thought that, that that's the whole thing about writing and reading. It's just, it's magical. Well, I'm going to stick with that message and theme thing because maybe I'm overthinking it. Maybe it's subliminal. But, and you even said in that answer, there's um, life and death. There's good and evil, basically. So I kind of see in some of your stuff this sort of one or the other. Maybe it's a journalist viewpoint, a uh, uh, truth and, and lies and old, young, male, female, uh, known, unknown. Am I overthinking this or is this sort of a reporter identity? I mean, well, I mean, to take it right down to uh, the old joke was that, you know, people say, well, there's two sides to every story. But when, when we're re- reporting, we found there's about 19 sides to every story, um, depending on what you're you're working on. But, yeah, you see it, you see it all, um, you know, on, the, on as a journalist. Uh, depending on what you're, you're being sent into or what, what you're, you're covering. But yeah, no, no, you're not overthinking. I think that, that, that just, to, for me, I guess all of this, of course, is speaking personally, but it just equips me to, to tell the stories I want to tell. And I, and, uh, I've been fortunate that I, you know, I get paid to do it. So, uh, so I've, I've been lucky and I'm, 
I'll just keep going until I can't do it anymore. Story of my life. That's all I'm doing. Uh, listen, you know, I was. it's interesting. I know I wrote a book about a Toronto serial killer, Bruce MacArthur, and his son, um, being your Canadian, he uh, his son sure had a lot of issues uh, being raised by a, a serial killer, I guess you would say, so to speak. There's so, so sure a lot of different details to look at when you cover something like that. Yeah, I mean, I just it fascinates me in terms of um, some of the you know major cases historically. Uh, you just get you get dwelling on that, and then the sort of the creativity starts to flow. You know, what about this and what about that? But I found um, uh, some excellent books about the children of some of the uh, the worst uh, war criminals from World War II and how they. Uh, the various um, ways in which they those children grappled with what their parents had done, especially those who were young children living through it at the time um, and may have been shielded from some of the atrocities only to discover after what the atrocities were. And then on, a, on maybe on a smaller level, but no less horrific, uh, the children of, uh, of serial killers. Um, or horrendous murderers. I mean, people who've done horrible things and, and how did their families live with it? You know, and two degrees, every family has a skeleton and every family has something they're grappling or dealing with. So I think that's also part of the, the human struggle that can, um, uh, that, that you can explore and, and see what you can make of it in terms of uh, crime fiction. Do you find there's a sense of pleasure in, in in writing crime fiction rather than true crime, for instance, because you can end it. and Because uh, I would imagine that um, when you're reporting live stories that are, are pretty uh, horrific or, you know, hard to deal with sometimes, it's emotional and stuff, but with your fiction, you can make sure the people that deserve it get what they deserve. You know what I mean? Like you have more of a... There's more of an ending because it seems like in real life a lot of times there isn't. Yeah, well, you've pretty much touched on the answer there. I mean, real life is chaos. Um, and um, crime fiction, you, you try to find, you, you bring the order to the chaos because the reader looks for it. For the most part, the reader, you know, if you don't have a satisfying conclusion and justice isn't served and, um, you know, wounds aren't, aren't on, on their way to healing, they get disappointed. So, so yeah, I think with, with fiction, um, you, you really control your, your universe. Um, and with crime fiction, you don't, uh, it's totally, totally different. I mean, cri- or with the uh, crime reporting uh, journalism, it's totally different. Yes. When you complete a book, just like a subject or something, whenever you do it, what do you think it does for you? How does it change you? Oh, it's cathartic. I mean, yeah, when you, when you let go of the story, it's like you've climbed a mountain and, um, for me, and, um, you're on to the next one. So that, that's in your rear view mirror. I mean, you know, the, I've, I've enjoyed the ride. The characters are real, but it really fades just like in a movie theater. When the movie's over and the lights come up, I'm done. Um, and then, I, and then it goes into the production process. You know, it, I mean, don't to get really, to get literal about it all. I mean, I really, I, I do move on. And, and then when uh, readers get onto the story and then they get back to you when it's, when it comes out, that part's exciting. I have to pick the book up and look at it and go, Oh yeah. Um, because I've totally forgotten. Um, but I'll still come back 
every now and then to, you know, I'll remember a scene or something from my earlier books and uh, I'll go, oh, that was fun to write. How did I do that? Or I'll pick it up and read it and go, geez, I, I was good back then. I, I don't think I could do that again. But I, I think that's just, just natural. You just sort of move on and, and you're not sure if the muscles are still, you know, as, as good as they were at various But that's just, I think that's not every writer goes through that, I think. But, but when I'm done a book, I'm done a book. I really, I, I just move on. Hmm. So you're a love them and leave them kind of guy then. Yeah. <laughs> as awful as it sounds, but, but when I'm in it, it's, it's like I'm in the world. It's a war. It's a battle. You know, we're, we're there with working on the dragons. You know, the bridge is out. We got to build a new one. We're fixing this. We're, I'm there with my people. We're all there together. And when we, we, we sort of, you know, we make it to the, to the promised ending and the sun is uh, shining and it's like, we're all, we're all okay. Right. You know, and it's like, okay, see ya. We all move on. And that, that's how I feel when I finish the book with the characters in the situation. It's like, okay, but let's go on to the next one. Yeah. You throw them away. Uh, oh, no, no, no. <laughs> I broke up with you. Get out of my life. Uh, you, know, you know what? I'll, I actually, if you want to get a little, little philosophical here or go beyond, I know that when I'm done, and we've gone off. Um, they're going to live on in the in the imaginations of the readers because the readers are coming, the audience is coming, and they're going to they're going to go through it all, and the whole thing's going to replay and replay in in individual uh, the minds of individual readers. So they're going to live on and live on. So so you know people can pick up my first book for the first time that I wrote I don't know 21 years ago, and and they're going to it's going to be fresh to them. So the, those characters will live on. But we can use a lot of detail or enough detail in your books to give these characters life. How that, that that's obviously important to you. Am I am I right or wrong on that? Uh yeah, you're right. And it was ingrained, I think, um, and something I like. That that to me, I think it's a double edged thing. To me, I think in, in in fiction writing, detail moves things. Remember Chekhov, uh was the great one I, I say Chekhov it was in a letter to his brother or friend about writing. Um don't tell me that the moon is shining describe the 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 way the 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 way the uh, the way the moonbeams hit the broken glass and glittered you know something like you don't you know show don't tell and i think that's good creatively and then on a journalistic level uh, almost like a boot camp way to drill into you 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 come into a situation and you're going to interview somebody and it's intense and maybe it's the worst time of their life you're a human sponge you got to soak up every little detail you might not ever put it in the story, but it, but you're soaking up everything. You're looking for signs and stuff. And, you know, I remember things that just would just move you to tears. And and so I think so that, that combination, knowing creatively what you're supposed to do and then having had that experience, um, you try to remember that you give it your all when you're writing your book. I even catch myself getting lazy. I have to admit, I do do the tell sometimes we'll go okay he was really tired and i'll look at that sentence and go you are really lazy what do you mean he's really tired it's the same you know the character sagged in the chair and his head drooped that would be i know that takes a little more work than saying he's really tired but he conveys it so detail is important i think detail really connects with the reader uh stephen king is great at that and i mean he uses the way back at the branding he uses uh you know uh, they didn't go to the grocery store. They went to Walmart aisle three, you know, and the air smelled of rubber because that's where the tires were, you know, that, and it connect, you connect with that. You go as a reader. Yeah. That, and that pulls you into the world, I think. 
that the the author's creating. Well, connecting as a reader, you write female characters, you write youth characters. Tell me how you put yourself in that mindset to do that. Well, um, it's a little difficult and it feels a little weird sometimes. Um, I might ask for help if I know I know people of that generation or that age group uh, or observe them closely. Um, you might have to, uh, I wouldn't call it cheating, you go to the library and you might read psychology, psych, psychological texts about um, what the issues are for a certain age group. Um, for example, if if someone is coping with loss, I mean, I experienced that enough in the crime beat, but, um, you know, periods of grief and you, there are books on that. So, um, and if there's, uh, you know, what is it like to be a single divorced mom? Well, there's enough stuff online of, uh, of women chatting about that. So, you know, you observe that. It's, it's just sort of, you want to, you want to do your research and get into that sort of thing. And then, then you pull back and think that we're all human. And, um, what are the main human uh, elements and fears? Plus, I have to tell you guys, you know, I, I also have a good reading circle. You know, I have my agent, I have my, my editor, I have, uh, my friend I was referring to later who, who's very good, uh, as a first reader. And my wife is my, my primary editor. So I have a lot of safety checks and balances and quality control. And many times I've been told, no, 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 no. This, that a person wouldn't think like this. They would say this or they would, you know, so they, they help me, they help me keep it. On course. What, what's your relationship with your characters then? Uh, uh, this has got to be a little different because quite often when we talk to fiction writers, they talk about uh, their relationship in a, in a in a like a family situation. Like they feel like they're kids, or they're. I get all sorts of descriptions as well as um, how tied they are to them, and and they see them in their mind, they hear their voices, all of that. What what's your description on this? Well, all of that's true. They they have to be real to you, um, and sometimes you feel bad for all the horrible things you're putting them through. <laughs> uh, but that's you know that's the melodrama of it all and the thriller aspect of it all. But yeah, they are real. They're all they're going twenty four seven in your head. They're living in your head because they have to be. I think if you're making it if you're making it real and you're giving it your all, um, and there are times as as cliche and as weird as it sounds and even i roll my eyes when i hear other writers say this but i'm going to say it myself too um where you'll be writing along and the character might just you say what that they would not do this character would you know it's almost like they stand up and say hey well what about the hey i want to and they, they may take over for a moment in a way and you go yeah that makes perfect sense and you let them breathe a bit but um you're with them all the time so the relationship is uh is everything. I think um, you feel uh, like a friend. You feel uh, uh, you're the god of, of the universe. You know um, uh, that that you've created for them. But uh, you're also uh, you know ev- everything. So yeah, the relationship to me uh, is real. Um, they're going thinking about them now. They're they're always they're always on on your mind. Um, and how are you going to? Uh, to see them through everything and make sure that it makes sense and make sure that they don't behave. But what my wife and I always call and what every person calls the big as ifs, you know, like a, you are allowed a certain suspension of disbelief. The reader will give you that if the story's fantastic and it's really working and clicking and, you know, oh, you know, when the character saw suddenly I need a knife and there's a knife on the shelf, well, the reader would go, okay, I'll 
maybe it'll happen, maybe it won't, but they'll, they'll give you that. But if you have too many of those coincidences or things that aren't real, um, and, and of course, if, if it's out of character, your story starts to weaken and, you know, you're watering the wine and you use any analogy you like, but, um, then you get yourself into trouble. But my relationship with the characters, to come back to questions, they're very real to me. You're not hearing them at night and waking up with a shovel in your hand or something like that, are you? No. No, his wife is. What I, no, uh, well, yeah, that's a whole other story. You can ask me about that. Uh, you should do interviews with the spouses of authors and see, see that might be interesting. Um, what I think uh, for me, um, know that, I might have some ideas just before I fall asleep. So I'll, I'll jot those down. And, um, cause if I don't, when I wake up, I think it's a matter of age now. I'm getting up there. Uh, I'll forget them by morning. If I don't in, in the old days, if I had a good idea as I fall asleep, I'd wake up and I'd remember it. But when I wake up now, it's a whole clean slate. So if I haven't jotted it down, but I do, the, the I can just, I, my mind is working just as I'm starting to that. That sleepy stage, uh, ideas will start to spark, and I'll uh, I'll have to capture them, and um, and carry them into the next day's work. Rick, tell me about your bad guys. How do you relate to them? Do they get inside your head too? Oh yes, of course, yes. Um, but they have to be, and I'm sure you hear this over and over. They have to be well rounded. Every bad guy has some good qualities. Every good guy has some bad qualities. But you you want to make them multi dimensional. Um, or um, you want to give the reader an understanding of what they're doing. It's not, it's not um, uh, that you support um, evil deeds, but uh, many readers have told me they like to know the motivation because when a horrible thing happens, the world always asks, well, why? Why? And that's usually, you know, does emerge later. Well, this is why. And you start going, oh my. And it doesn't excuse anything because we're human beings. We want the answers. We want to know why. So I think you apply that to your villains. It's, it's the why. It's the, um, you know, I can think of some of the characters, the villains I've created. They were terrible, but um, I did go a little deeper in explaining the why. And uh, I think readers um, liked having that information, like being equipped with that, rather than just here's a bad guy, boo in the night kind of thing, which is two-dimensional. And um, I'm not accusing anyone of doing that, but it's something you want to avoid. Oh, yeah. You're picking on me now. <laughs> <laughs> People want to avoid you, Al. Yeah. That's how it is, you know. Um, so now you, you have this other book called Her Last Goodbye. It's a novel. Let's, let's, let's talk about what that is. Um, what, what, what's the premise? This seems quite a bit different. Her Last Goodbye, I guess we call it a domestic thriller. Um, that came to life, uh, I don't mind telling you, from uh, real experiences. My wife is a member of a book club. Uh, they don't really read my books because they read books that are better than mine, and I don't mind. And oh, there's a few women in the club, and they each take turns hosting it. And in our suburb, there's another little suburb nearby, or 15-minute, if that, 10-minute drive. And that's where all most of the other members are. And um, when my wife goes there once a month, uh, she, uh, she usually gets home a little later at night and I'm usually asleep when she gets in. I can hear her, but I'm usually asleep. So I thought to myself, what if one night, and it's like clockwork. I know she's going to be home. And if I wake up in the middle of the night and turn over, she's there. I thought, well, what if I wake up one night, um, and turn over and she's not there? And I thought, well, that would be strange because then I wouldn't know what to do. To be quite honest, I, 
I don't know how to get into her computer. I don't know how to call her friend. I think I know who they are. And, I, and when I start talking about that with my agent editor, she goes, that's so true. A lot of husbands really don't know, you know, anything. <laughs> and, and I thought, well, that would, that would kind of freak you out. And uh, so that, that was the uh, um, inciting incident in, in her last goodbye. A suburban mom who's got a little boy. There's strain in the marriage. You have a beautiful suburban house. Um, she just doesn't come home. And they find her car in a wooded area off the road where she should path. The husband is out looking and looking and looking. He, he didn't see the car the first time. He's out all night. He ran over one of those traffic, plastic traffic pylons, which wedged under his vehicle. So when he stopped to pull it out, he scraped his knuckles, which were all bloody. So come sun up. He's, he's lost sleep. The boy's actually sleeping with friends or relatives, so he's alone that night. The husband's alone. He's a contractor who builds houses, working class. They're in suburban Buffalo. His wife hasn't come home. He can't find her, can't reach her. The neighbors are worried, but not the neighbors, the book club women who he ultimately reaches said she laughed at the right time. Um, so he calls police. So the first cop comes over, takes notes, observes him, note, takes all the statement down, and notices the scrape on his knuckles and allows for a photograph of that. So the usual, the husband becomes a suspect because he had been out that night with his working buddies. They had a big contract, and um, there was a, a woman who kind of liked him, the husband. So so you start to have some of these other threads of suspicion. So that's what it's all about is the impact of um, a missing suburban mom uh, on the on her family her child, her husband, and um, we peel back um, what else is going on in that community at the time. So it sounds pretty standard, but I, I liked it because I, I used our suburb as a model. Um, so I, I felt connected. It was during the pandemic, really, so we really couldn't go anywhere and do much. So so that came about, and I thought the fact of the book club, too, um, my wife's book club got a, a thrill out of it. They actually, I think some of them did actually read the book. Uh, they called it their book club book, <laughs> but I had I had fun with that one, and it's done quite well uh, as well. And the cover, actually, that is my. It looks like my wife's Camry. I tease her because my wife drives a Camry, and that, and I mentioned uh, that to them uh, when they did the cover. You made your wife disappear. And uh, yeah, <laughs> when we actually drive by the actual road that was the inspiration that my wife and I use you know, every other day. The very first time when the book, after she read it and everything, she knew what the book was about. She looked over there. We're in the car. She goes, is that where you murdered me? She said, <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, well, I don't want to give it away. So. Yeah, no, of course. No. Uh, well, that's so when you're when you're doing stuff like that, um, have you written a lot of people, you know, in your books, like personally or real people? Um like your wife, maybe she was the one that you murdered and stuff like that. No, have you, have you do actually do uh, that in any of your books? No, not really. I think maybe various people might serve as inspiration as a jumping off point, but by no means, um, no, not really. Um, first of all, it's for legal reasons. You don't want to do that. But, um, but no, I find that um, I may have met someone or met a couple of people and they might serve as inspiration. You know, you've seen uh, situations where maybe uh, someone's behaved badly or they did something that was, oh, my gosh, you know, no one knows about that. Um, or, uh, 
detective has actually told me something and I may, you know, use a thread or, or dramatize it, you know, as inspiration, but no, um, not really. I mean, my wife is not in the book I just described, but the, our situation she recognized immediately. And um, on occasion, she might recognize the structure of a family situation that is recognizable to her. And she would ask me to alter it a bit just for her comfort level. I said, well, no one's going to know. And strangers who read it wouldn't know. Um, but if she was not comfortable with something, I'll, I can change it a bit. So. But no, to answer you, no. Yeah, that means not really. That means there's some real people. We need some names. <laughs> yeah. We want the real truth here. Like, who? Um, no, actually, you know, when you when you write, um, how is your structure? Because you've written a ton of books. So you must have some sort of a uh, a format, some sort of a way that you put yourself in the situation and and it, it, are you the type that assigns certain hours every day sit down and write for so many hours no matter what or do you have to be in the right mood does it have to be the right atmosphere how does your process work oh okay well when i was working full-time uh, as a reporter and working full-time later when i left reporting i was in communications with the government um, but i had full-time day job so what I would do is that um, I used to get up. I found I was a morning person. So I would get up and uh, make notes um, or write if I was on a shift, if, you know, like I referred to earlier. But later in life, um, I had to schedule and be guarded with my time. So uh, when I would commute, sometimes uh, through the transit system, I would uh, make notes on the commute. I might have a half an hour. So I would make notes there in the morning on the way to the day job, do the day job, then take up those notes on the commute back, look at those notes again, um, refresh them. And then on the weekends, I would turn those notes into, uh, into the draft, into chapters and stuff. And then when I traveled um, for news conferences, actually, or not news conferences, book conferences, uh, hotel rooms, airports, I would write, you know, on plane, you know, or, or make notes. I was always in the book using every spare minute. So yeah, I had to, um, I had to structure my time that way. It, uh, you know, it's, it's demanding and it takes a toll on the family life. We had the kids, we had two young kids then. So I was always, always working away, um, and missing out on a few things and the kids are missing out on a few things that just happened, um, at the time, but, uh, we seem to come through it. Okay. So let me ask sort of the philosophical question. You were a journalist, and therefore you're a writer. When did you say, you know what, Rick, you're an author. You know, you are impacting lots of people. <laughs> I think, well, I think when the first, when the first, when my first agent uh, faxed uh, me at home, I was at work, my wife was at home, my little fax, because I was selling a lot of freelance articles and I'd written a story for penthouse and yeah back then we had faxes i think it was pre-internet um and um my wife's and i had an agent who accepted the book and was was marketing the book it was taking a while and i was sort of puttering around to start a second one but no contract my wife called me at the newsroom and said you just got a fax from millie that was my agent in new york she says we have an offer and when she said i could tell by the tone of her voice too she was excited we have an offer so anyway, we accepted the offer. The first book came out. And with the first book, which was supposed to be hardcover and then a year later be paperback, the publisher decided they were changing their strategy 
And the money they would have spent on hardcover, they'll plow it all into the paperback. And they took a quarter page ad out on USA Today, which when I was working as a reporter, I could get that day because uh, it was near our news bureau. And that just thrilled me. I, I'm looking at that ad, and then my book is in stores. Friends started to tell me that I'm seeing it. And I was getting phone calls from across the country. And some of my American colleague friends in the U.S., I see your book. I see your book here. Just a little paperback. But I, that's what I knew. I thought, oh, it's it's kind of real. <laughs> so so that that's when it was with the first book. So now if someone hasn't heard of you before, um, which is hard to believe, um, but if 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 you wanted them to get kind of the um, essence of your writing and how you write, what one book would you suggest they pick up and read of yours? Oh my goodness, that's a tough question, really. Um, I don't know uh, because some some of the books are no longer available easily in stores physically. They're all available online for those who read electronically uh, or digitally. But I would say maybe Missing Daughter. I'll just throw that out there. That's fairly recent. Um, it won the Barry Award, and uh, it's a standalone, but it gives you an idea of the type of book I'm writing. If they really wanted like a type of international thriller, which I'm still quite proud of, and the book still sells quite well as uh, Six Seconds. That's a standalone, kind of a global, international uh, thriller. Um, and the Panic Zone is another one that I, I like, but yeah, I would I would recommend those three from my backlist, as it were. Any that you want to go back to and rewrite? Any any because you know, as we all get older and write, and the years go by, uh, we progress somewhat, and we become different people. That you know, you learn from going through each book. So is there some of the earlier ones you'd look at and you'd kind of go, oh, my, ooh, I'd like to change that? Oh, maybe there were a few things in the very first book because the first book came in, um, I think, at about 160,000 words. And the acquiring editor in New York, we had a number of phone calls. You know, I'm a first-timer, and she's she's been around. She, knew, she, knew, she said, we're going to have to take a lot of words out of this. He took it, he took it down a lot and I, I did curse quite a bit. And, um, so that one I think could even be polished a little more, even though it's, it's raw and I think it's, it's great. It's my wife's favorite book, the first one, um, because it put so much into it, but, uh, it might still need a polish here and there. <laughs> and there are a few where little threads maybe got overlooked in the storyline that readers had pointed out. They weren't mistakes. They were, Oh yeah, we had various drafts and there were some things that got, got left that I would go back and fix. You know, it's like you missed a spot here when you're painting a house or that kind of thing. Um, most readers would miss, miss it, but little things like that, you go back up and do some touch-ups. Yeah, sure. So, so do you like, um, interacting with the readers and, and doing that thing? So do you have, um, social media pages set up or do you have a website? Um, how do people find Rick? I've got a website. RickMafina.com, and it's uh, and all the contacts um, is at the back of every book. I've got uh, Twitter, and um, I never sought the blue check mark. <laughs> I, I was you today, by the way. I, I didn't. I didn't. Well, I, I didn't care. There, there was early on. There was somebody else posing as me, but I think they had three followers. It didn't go anywhere. And I thought, 
that says everything. <laughs> Wasn't me. And I, uh, some Instagram and Facebook, I can, I'm out there. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I feel social, but I don't have massive followings. I think uh, maybe in total, I might have 10,000. But on uh, BookBub, which is closed, you have, to, I don't know if you know what BookBub is, but you have to be a member of BookBub. I got 21 or 22,000 followers there, which, which is good. Um, so, uh, yeah, I've got a social media presence. Yeah, you can, fi- you can find me online. Well, of course, we're going to have that, uh, your your website up and your books and all that so people can find you with just one click. Make it easy. So the, the question, how do you know a book is good? Like, what is good for you? You mean the one, if I'm working on it or reading one? <laughs> Either one. Like, what makes a book good? For you, like what? What? What is it about a book that makes it good? Well, if I'm reading one, it's it just has to engage me. I mean, you know, if the writing, if you know, sometimes the the writing can do it, but it, overall, it's the story. Uh, the story has to just just engage me and pull me in. And I think that's what happened way back when I started writing this genre. I, I read, you know, thrillers. I had and I had the one side of my family there were ten kids and. The ten aunts and uncles, and they were huge readers of uh, commercial fiction. And there was always books laying around when I was a kid. Valley of the Dolls, The Godfather. Jo- I remember I read Jaws in one afternoon. Um, so they always had thrillers, and I think I think it was those commercial, hard driving, page turning thrillers um, that stuck with me. So those make those make for a good book for me. They have to be. Um, they just have to. Keep me connected. Stick with me, and don't lose me. Um, and that's that's what I attempt to do with my stuff. I mean, yeah, I put in purposely put in the hooks at the end of every chapter because I like hooks at the end of chapters, and the readers seem to like them because it makes them say, "Well, what's going to happen next?" And keep coming back. I mean, it is entertainment. If I can weave in some themes and some some stuff, um, that's fine. But I don't want to weigh it down with that. Um, so, what makes a book? Good that I write, I think, is is one that I've given my all, and I know I can just feel that this is a good story. Um, sometimes the readers agree, some readers don't. But uh, but reading a, a book that, that I deem to be a good one is uh, is one that just keeps me going right to the end. Mm. Now, besides um, myself and Joe, who are your who's your favorite uh, writer? <laughs> yeah, thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs> There's so many. I mean, really, uh, all over time, different stages of my life. I mean, when I was young, Hemingway was accessible. Uh, you learn a lot, you know, but you move on from that. Faulkner was a challenge. James Joyce was, uh, was a challenge. And I'm not saying that to sound, you know, I stuck, I minored in English literature. Um, but commercial, well, they're all commercial. If there's a price tag on a book, it's commercial. Um, but I think, uh, oh, Thomas Harris, I think, really hit his stride. I have my own opinions on that. I mean, Black Black Sunday was excellent because he was, you know, I think he was still with Associated Press when he wrote that, and, I, and this was what I was coming back to. And then uh, Red Dragon uh, was superb. And I, and in my mind, I've seen some other people touch on this. I really believe that Silence of the Lambs was a rewrite of Red Dragon, where Harris himself thought, you know what, I, I think. Um, I can tighten this up a bit. And he did. And you see, to me, the Associated Press journalistic style in Silence of the Lambs that Harris turned into poetry. 
um, because it's usually, as a rule, and most buyer stories, it's usually three sentences to a paragraph, three short sentences to a paragraph. Every word has to count. And if you go back and actually study Sadaf, he makes, he, he just pulls everything out of a very short sentence that he just conveys so much. And that's, that's just the beauty of it all, in my opinion. So Thomas Harris, uh, very good. Michael Conley, very good. There's just so many, so many. Yeah. 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 Joe Goldberg. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Only no. crime on my book is that I write them. Yeah. <laughs> But, I, you know, there's no, and, um, you know, Laura Lippman's good. They're all, it's just so many people are so good. You know, Lisa Unger. So what's your next book coming up? Like, what's what's next coming from Rick? Well, it's uh, Everything She Feared, and that's the one we were talking about earlier. Um, the, the children of people who uh, have done evil things or terrible things. So that's coming out in April. Um, I'm working on one that um, I have to submit in, in April that will probably be released in um, uh, 24 sometime. And then I'll start the third book of this three-book deal, uh, another standalone, um, later this uh, later in 23. Um, or, sorry, I'll probably start it around uh, May, June 23. I'll start writing it. Got to be the laziest writer I've ever met. <laughs> Yeah, um, yeah. something for your life, will you, buddy? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's been a pleasure. So uh, we've been here uh, talking with uh, author Rick Molfina. So thank you for coming on the show, Rick. Well, thank you so much for having me um, and letting me ramble on. It was a pleasure. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.com. HouseOfMystery.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.